So this is the Illustrators of the Future, How Do You Survive as an Artist panel. My name is John Goodwin. I'm the president of Galaxy Press and the moderator for this panel. Here we have Dan Dos Santos, who's probably everybody knows who he is, but he's also an Illustrators of the Future contest judge. And we have Bruce Bernaysi, who is a winner. He's an, a very, also an accomplished artist, and he's a winner from the Illustrators of the Future con contest. And what uh, we promised you on this panel, so you can draw, paint, and sculpt, but how do you turn that into a profession you can support yourself with? Illustrators of the Future judges discuss the contests and tips on the business of art, from creating portfolios to working with art directors. So uh, to begin with, uh, let me just have um, each of them introduce themselves a little bit more than my saying what their name is. So Dan? Hi, I'm Dan DeSantos. I'm a, uh, primarily a freelance illustrator. I do mostly book covers, though I do some comic stuff, some film stuff. Uh, if you know my work, I've probably you probably know it from Patricia Briggs covers or Brandon Sanderson, whom I do a lot of, uh, Patrick Rothfuss and Jim Butcher as well, and mostly cover work. I've been doing that for 22 years now. All right, I'm Bruce Bernaysi. Um I've been working for about six, seven years uh, as a freelancer. Um, I do otherworldly landscapes for the most part. I'm best known for my work on Slay the Spire, a computer game, and Numenera, a tabletop RPG. And I've got work from Magic and D&D uh, &D coming out next year. Ooh, awesome. Good for you. So to begin with then, um, so both of you, I know a lot about you because I've done podcasts with both of you, so I know your histories. So uh, Dan, your history as you started in illustration, how you like bloomed. Because you've got a really interesting history. Uh, like, what is my history? I started, well, I went to school for arts. Actually, I'd be curious to know before we, because I kind of know what wanted to talk about. How many of you here are artists yourselves? Awesome. All right. And are you here specifically because you're wondering how to make a living out of that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> cool. How many of you here currently make a living at your art? Awesome. Good. Nice. That's, you know, that's no easy feat. Um, so I started off, I went to school for art, which back when I went to school, which was in the 90s, it was kind of the only option for it, really. There wasn't YouTube videos to help you learn how to paint. There wasn't any of that stuff. And there's so many amazing ateliers and online courses now. But back then, my option was to go to college. So I went to SVA in New York City for illustration for four years and got a BFA. And I was really fortunate to have an amazing graduating class. So some of my peers were just top-notch. Um, if you know Nicholas Uribe or James Jean or Tomer Hanuka or Esau Andrews, we were all in the same painting class together, which just created this, this sense of community and competition, like friendly competition that really helped accelerate things for us. Uh, and once I graduated, I started doing anything I could. Uh, my promise to myself was I would not get a day job. So while I was used to being a dirt-poor college kid, I just started hustling. I would make flyers and stick them under windshield wipers that I would paint your cat, your kids, your grandma, anything. And uh, so I was doing a little bit of odds and ends. I was doing portrait work. I was doing some gallery work when I could. I was doing private commissions for friends. I was trying to solicit for illustration and do everything. And as the illustration picked up, I would slowly weed out, okay, I don't want to paint people's cats. And more illustration would pick up, and I don't want to do portraits. And then more illustration, and then finally I dumped gallery work, which I loved all those things, but it wasn't my focus. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, uh, cover work became my full-time gig probably about four years after graduation, and that's just what I've stuck with since then. Okay, and Bruce? 
Uh, yeah, I also went to uh, university for, um, well, I was studying scientific illustration at the time because it seemed like the most likely choice at that particular uh, program at University of Michigan uh, to build my skills, like my drawing skills, rendering skills, and all of that. Uh, but when I graduated, I didn't really, like this was like maybe 2005, um, I didn't really see a path forward to the kinds of jobs that I was interested in doing. Uh, so I actually headed to China for six years and taught and traveled and kind of scratched my other, my other itch in life, which is travel. Um, and then at the end of that, uh, I came back with a, a strong desire to make my art career actually work for me. I happened to cross this guy's blog, hmm. Muddy Colors. Um, you. And, you know, I mean, that sort of resource literally did not exist uh, when I was in college. So, you know, that sort of thing and Gurney Journey and the rest of those uh, really helped me figure out, okay, what are the things that I need to pull together uh, in order to make this happen? And, you know, a few years after I got back to the States, um, I started uh, just trying to, to go out and get commissions. And um, it was a little rough at first because I didn't really realize the importance of networking. So I was just, you know, sitting in my art cave, making the art, um, you know, doing even kind of like a decent job on, on stuff even at that point, uh, but not really able to get gigs. I was like applying for every single thing I could find online. I was applying for jobs on Craigslist even. Uh, please don't do that. You're going to get some really horrible jobs <laughs> that pay really terribly. Um, and then after about a year of that, um, I was at a game dev uh, get-together and uh, was talking to another artist that I met there. And on the spot, she was just looking at my portfolio and she's like, okay, well, I've got a piece that uh, I don't have time for, so I'll just put you in touch with my client. And it's just kind of snowballed uh, from there for the most part. Actually, that that point about networking, I I know so many artists whose first job was given to them because another artist couldn't take a job. Yeah. And just having peers that are successful and doing the things you like to do, really like I think that was one of my first jobs was because I think Donato was too busy, and then one of Dave Palumbo's first jobs was because I was too busy, and it just kind of like, you know, helping yeah. keep keeping yeah, all those boats other. afloat. Yeah. Yeah. So. We're at a convention, and I just recently just did a whole interview with, with Pat Henry, who's the CEO of DragonCon, you know, about how it grew and evolved. But a big part of DragonCon is the networking, and this is probably the third biggest art show convention in the U.S. Oh, I think that's fair, yeah. And so can you talk about that in terms you know, continuing on with, with the um, networking, but the importance of actually attending shows, as you found for your careers, both as, in terms of selling your works, but also, which I think is maybe more what you're mm -hmm. doing, um, but also making those connections for future clients. Yeah. Um, I, so it's changed a lot. Like it used to be in the 80s if you wanted to do book cover work, which is I always kind of set out book cover work is what I wanted to do. You got that by coming to these conventions and small literary conventions that were full of authors. So they were full of editors and those were the people that were hiring for book cover jobs. That is not the case anymore. Uh, but it quite like, really, those, it was like scouting back in the 80s and 90s at these cons. Now, mostly this con for me is about networking with fans and networking with my peers more than anything. I don't come here to look for jobs anymore, though that doesn't mean they're not to be found here. There are a lot of jobs and there's a lot of people with work and would-be authors, which for somebody starting off is almost even better. There's so many aspiring authors 
coming to this show that are sitting in on writing tracks because they want to be published. And there's so many aspiring artists. And it's like, these are the perfect combination of like the budgets that you're looking for and people with that budget and that need that, you mm -hmm. know, going to even, I hang out at the Weston bar because it's where the writers hang out. <laughs> I, like, I like meeting those people that actually like are involved in my business rather than just hanging out with the people I already know all the time. And I make it a point to try to meet new people and really business connections grow that way greatly. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I definitely second that. Um, one thing that I learned from uh, Lauren and Mark, mm -hmm. actually, in their, their art business course uh, was the concept that, you know, uh, when you have, when you're kind of scouting after a particular client, um, don't assume that like just meeting them once is going to make you. It's like this five touches thing where you meet them once, you meet them twice and like five different occasions, different events that you might have met them and, and had contact and, you know, showed yourself to be a decent human being and, and all of that. And, you know, you could be practically family after that point. Yep. yep. So now meeting people, there are certain things, just etiquette and protocols. So, um, oh, Dan, look, look at this. I, I can really paint. I want you to see I can paint. Yeah, you, know? you can. You John. see this? Look at that. It's what, amazing. What you, think <laughs> you think I got a future? I actually, I... I like when people come up with their portfolio to my to my booth. I don't mind it. Um, you can't do it all day because I'm busy. But when I have time, I it's. I mean, it's also why I'm here is because I think I'm partial to. I was really fortunate to to meet a mentor when I was an aspiring artist, and it changed everything. It's a little bit like maybe muddy colors for you is yeah. that really somebody lifting that veil and showing you how you can do this is so immensely important. And so if I have that opportunity to do that for somebody at this con, I, I feel almost obligated to do that. Um, it doesn't mean you want to like be pushy or anything. Right. And, and if somebody's like working or enjoying their drink at the bar, maybe you don't want to do that. But it's, I, I love, I'm never like sad to look at art. I want to look at everybody's portfolio. <laughs> yeah, so. You're the he's the person who, when he relaxes from painting his 10, 12 hour day, he's in the couch. Sketching. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, that comes with the gig. <laughs> so, um, now you're both connected with the Illustrated Future contest. It was a con. How many of you are familiar with what the Illustrated Future is? Can you raise your hand. Ooh, very low. You guys very should cute. familiarize yourself yeah. with it. So this is a. It's a competition that was based off of the Rise of Future contest that was started by Owen Hubbard in 1983. Five years later, because of the success of the Writers Contest. The Illustrators of the Future contest was started. So now it's a, it's a competition where we get entries from all over the world. We have about 135 different countries where we have artists submit their work. But the top 12 are chosen each year, three every quarter, and they are selected by judges like Dan and winners like Bruce. And they're, they're commissioned to illustrate the winning stories from the Writers of the Future contest um, each year. And so it gives a, a, a forum or a platform for the aspiring artist to get themselves known. These books, they're, everyone wins, every year they, they win national awards, book awards, and they're always a national bestseller. It's pretty much the best-selling anthology um, for science fiction that's out there. It happens every year. Each year it comes out. But the main thing about it is it gives a recognition to the artist in this case, and it also, uh, if you didn't actually make it as one of the winners, you can be an honorable mention, receive a certificate for that. And that gives you that vote of confidence that you should keep on working it, you know. Um, and that's one thing I want to discuss here, too, is the whole subject of 
of the value, first of all, of this contest, and then the importance of not giving up. Yeah. So I'd love to even expound on what the, the winning the contest entails, because I think this is awesome, that if you get into this contest, whether you're an aspiring writer or an aspiring artist, you guys fly them out to L.A., and you end up working with the other artists, and you match one of the writers up with the artist, and you illustrate a short story that one of these aspiring authors wants, and they publish you in this book together. Um, and it ends up being first published works. I believe Diana Rowland, whom I've done covers for, her first published work was in this book. Patrick Rothfuss. And being published is, it's this catch-22. Like, if you want to do cover work, the best advertising is cover work. If you want to do magic cards, the best advertising for it is magic cards. So, like, how do you get your first cover? But, like, other editors look at other covers and they say, I want that on my cover. And I feel like this is the perfect opportunity to, like, kind of escape that weird loophole and right. get your work on a bookshelf where somebody that does that can see that thing. That's, a, that's an exact point on that stuff. And then when, like, you became a judge, what, why did you become a judge and what do you, what's the value of that for yourself? For me, it's paying it forward, mostly. I, like I said, I was so fortunate. I stumbled into, when I was sticking flyers under windshield wipers looking for work, I ended up meeting this guy who lived in my hometown and happened to be the president of the Society of Illustrators. And I showed him all the work I wanted to do. And he's like, that's called illustration. You should go to school for illustration. And so I just, he just laid it out for, I got to watch him do his taxes, do sketches, submit jobs, do revisions. And it just, I was talking to Patty Brace about this yesterday. She said she saw somebody, she had never made a connection as a reader that she could write the book that she was reading. And somehow I had never made the connection that you know, I saw this artwork, but I didn't know how to do it. And when I saw somebody just do it as a nine to five, it was like, I could do that. I could absolutely do that. And yeah. somehow demystified it. So uh, like I said, any, any opportunity to pay that forward for me, because I would not be doing this now if it wasn't for him. So that's great. And Bruce? Uh, I would say one of the amazing things about it is just how prolific it is, because basically if you, you can apply each quarter of the year, Right, they're running. They're running another section of the segment of the contest. You know, so if you don't, you know, you sub, submit your your stuff, and if you don't get in, you know, first quarter, you can. If you've got some new work to submit, submit the next quarter, and so on. So, like, you get that honorable mention or what whatnot that you know sort of gives you that vote of confidence. Just submit to the next one. See if you can get in because you know it can very rapidly happen. Now, I think in my case. I submitted like right before I was like doing full time, like uh, or at least a significant a significant amount of my uh, income uh, from professional work. So it was like right at the last moment that I possibly could have submitted, mm -hmm. and I just I submitted once and I got in. But that's certainly not always the case. But I think it's it's great that it always provides that opportunity. You don't have to wait another year, another several years to try again and, you know, quite likely get in. And this, of course, is an amazing organization, but there's so many things you guys can submit to, like just submitting to really any contest. If you're paying heavy fees, maybe not, but... This is free to enter on this one, by yes. the way. Um, yeah. But there's other books like Spectrum, which is an amazing art annual. There is 3 by 3 there's Communication Arts, there's a Society of Illustrators. There's Infected by Art. Infected by Art. There's so many good things you can submit your art to and get it out into the right hands. That's great. So now on the fact of illustration and turning it into a career. Like, how does one juggle that from 
it's almost like when do you quit your day job? You know, what's that transition and how should you do it? Because there's, there's everything right about being eager and positive about it, but there's everything also right about being real. It's, uh, do you want to handle any of that? Sure. Um, I mean, my f- last full-time day job before I started, you know, jumping into art, I actually got fired because my heart wasn't really into it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like well, the that tail. makes the choice easier, I right. guess. <laughs> yeah, it was like the tail end of eight years of teaching. Um, you know, in that point, I was already back in Seattle. And I was just like, oh, okay, well, I guess, you know, now I've got unemployment <laughs> income and, you know, that provided a little bit of runway to, to try and see what I could do. And like I said, that first year was, was pretty rough because I didn't really know what I should have been doing uh, with it. But, you know, I had that time to kind of figure it out and get my head together on that. And by the end of the year, I'd figured it out and I was, you know, starting to connect with the right people and I'd... Uh, just started to uh, uh, join Lauren and Mark's uh, program and, and, you know, started to really properly network at that point. So I think uh, having some kind of runway of, you know, money that you've set aside or people in your life who can support you for a little while, uh, a part-time job. Um, I worked at Home Depot part-time for, for quite a while, actually, I was uh, as I was ramping up my uh my freelance career. And the nice thing about that particular job was, you know, having a whole bunch of other cashiers around, you could always schedule things. So I could go to, you know, IMC Mm. workshop, or I could go do a convention like Emerald City, and I could go do all of these networking things because of the flexibility of the job. And then the more work I was getting from the art side, I could just dial down my hours, and they were fine with that. Oh, that's a good way to do it. So yeah, that it really was incredibly is, flexible. It's another catch-22. Like, if you're working this 9-to-5 job that's got you super busy, and then you finally get your dream commission, mm-hmm. you don't have the time to even do that. Like, like, And then let's say you got another one right after. Are you going to quit your job on the first commission? And so you need to make sure you allot yourself this time. Uh, I was fortunate in that I gave myself that stipulation that I wouldn't get a day job. So I told myself... How much do I need to live? I need three. At this point, I graduated college. I moved back home. I lived in my parents' basement. And my student loans were deferred for six months. So I needed $300 to buy food, pay for my car insurance and something. So I need to sell $300 worth of art every month. And then I wanted, once I started making maybe 600, it was like, well, now I can rent half of an apartment with somebody. And then I lived only within the means I allowed myself from art. Because uh, if you get a day job and you get comfortable with that income and you're making 60000 or 70000 a year, to go <laughs> back to like being a fledgling artist and making 5000 a year, which is about what I made my first year I filed taxes, is really hard. You're not going to do it. Like you don't want to give up your lifestyle. And so, so, so many people have this difficult time making this transition. But if you can do, say, a part-time job that just covers your cost of bare cost of living and then say, I'm going to dedicate all these other hours to pursuing this thing and anything beyond that, I'm going to make this money from art, art alone. Uh, I think it's like a nice, easy way to make a transition, but you have to have a plan. You have to have savings. You have to have the time uh, and really approach it like a strategy. So that's very good. Now, you mentioned um, um, people showing their portfolios. Mm -hmm. So you've got different types of work. So 
on a portfolio, should you have like, I've got a little bit of everything or do you want to have like a portfolio where you target it for your specific audience? Because I've had to go both ways when, yeah. I, when I've talked to artists. Uh, it depends on, on what you mean by a little bit of everything. Like I'll see portfolios that have life drawing and sketches and concept art and landscapes and sculpture and you don't want that. Uh, but let's say you're an oil painter who specializes in portraits. You want a little bit of everything and like, I want white people and black people and maybe not just portraits, like, but still niche. Uh, one of the advice I give my students a lot is people do not hire you because you can do everything. They hire you because you can do something no one else can do. And, and truly, like if you can make a portfolio that only you can do, that somebody else can copy if they tried, whether it be style or technical prowess or imagination, somebody wants that and somebody has to come to you to get it. There's literally no other place they can go. I've based most of my career on that premise. Mm -hmm. So, Good, and Bruce? Very much the same thing. I mean, uh, as I was saying in the panel earlier today, I kind of learned the hard way by taking all of those Craigslist jobs and doing a, a lot of uh, art that I did not want to do, a lot of jobs that really uh, were pretty terrible. I'm like, okay, I figured out I don't really like doing a lot of character stuff and, you know, like all of these other things that I was doing. And it's like, okay, landscapes and okay, weird landscapes. And, then, <laughs> and so I kind of figured out, okay, this is where my happy place is. And then once I figured out where that was and, and was able to focus my portfolio around that so that those were the types of jobs that were coming to me, then it all got much better and it just kind of like snowballed downhill. Yeah. And to expound on that, the, that focus isn't just with the style of your work. I think it's it's the focus of the work you want to do. That early on, like the notion, I always, I always knew I wanted to be an artist. But until I was like 13, that was just like, oh, well, one day, like it's Van Gogh is an artist. And one day you'll die and be famous. Like that was my notion of <laughs> artistry, right? Um, which is, it's too aloof. Being an artist, being a professional artist, if that's your goal, is so so wide that you can't have a strategy. But if you say, I want to do magic cards, well, now you know, okay, my portfolio should be horizontal. My portfolio should include things like armor and dragons and landscapes. There's only three people that hire for Magic the Gathering. Let me look at what they hire and what their tastes are. I only have to impress three people, not the whole world, to get my dream job that is so much more achievable of a goal and so focused that it seems like even if it takes you 10 years, you know these five steps you have to do to do this thing. If you don't narrow down that focus and you can do anything, you know, chances are pretty good you're going to just take detours for the rest of your life trying to figure it out. You know? That's good. Now, one thing, um, if anybody has any questions, because one of the things that I like to do on the panels is if people have specific questions, of, of either Bruce or Dan or myself, you're welcome to ask them, just raise your hand and I will, um, we'll, we'll address them as we continue on with other um, topics on this, on this yeah, particular panel. Interject anytime you guys like. So at this point, does anybody have any particular questions of, yes? Well, it depends on the kind of work she wants to do. Um, there was a gallery called Greenwich Workshop Gallery and they were located in Connecticut, which is where I lived and they did a lot of like Thomas Kincaid style prints in the 90s and stuff like that. But they also had an actual gallery space uh, in downtown Fairfield, Connecticut. 
And I was just walking around and literally soliciting. Like I would hustle as a teenager. They had, I walked through their gallery and they had all these landscapes, but they had nobody that did portrait work. And I was like, I paint mostly figurative work. And, uh, and would you be interested? And they said, well, show us a sample of what you could do. And if we like it, we'll hang it. And so I, I went home and I spent like three weeks doing the best figurative painting I could do. And I brought it in and they hung it on the wall on a temporary basis to see if it would sell. And it sold like the next day. And so they took me as an artist. And, and whenever I didn't have a job to do, I would just do a painting for that gallery. But it's quite honestly, almost as simple as that. Like if you drive past a gallery on your way to work every day, and, and you think you can do better than somebody in that space, they'll hire you. Like if you see a book cover on the shelf that you think you can do better than, contact that art director. Like it's really not that bad. So gallery work, depending on the kind of work she wants to do, what I was painting at that time was essentially high-end interior decoration. It was something that looked good over somebody's couch. I wasn't painting dragons or anything. I was painting ballerinas. Um, and so it's not stuff I wanted to do, but really it's about the audience your daughter's seeking out, depending on her work, I would say, do the work she wants to do, find out who wants to buy that, and are those people online, or are those people walking around a town in a tourist city spending money? And, and that would be the deciding factor for me. Or, or are they at a con? Yeah, are they at a con? This is, this is a huge audience. There's so many people here whose yeah. full-time job as an artist is just selling prints mm -hmm. to fandom, you know? Yes, sir. How do you start valuing Hmm. getting into galleries, things like that. Is it like hourly? Is it kind of like the art itself, size-wise? Like a little bit of all of the above. Do you want to go ahead and just give the question back so that, because we're recording. Yeah, so if you guys couldn't hear, uh, how do you start valuing your work? This is really the hardest thing when you're starting out, I think. It, or it's most hard when you're starting out. Afterwards, it's really important for your art to always increase in value. It, it's, it's an investment for most people. If they're buying an original painting and original paintings of yours start going down in price because you had fire sales or you just want to do cheaper work. Everybody that bought your work previously has lost their investment and you're going to, it's not as desirable. So usually I tell people like how to price your work is 10% higher than your last painting all the time, just a little bit higher, maybe 5%, doesn't matter. Just as long as it's a little higher than your last one. The very first one, that's tough. It's what you can sell it for. You might undersell yourself a little, but I think if you're paying yourself at least a fair hourly rate, just personally, like I spent 80 hours on this. I should get at least $10 an hour. I don't want to starve. I'm going to sell this for $800 is a pretty decent place to start or something or wh whatever it is for you, considering how much time you spent on that piece. And then just make that your standard and only go up gradually. It doesn't matter if it's monthly or annually or whatever, just make sure you're gradually working upwards. Okay. And then secondly, uh, was that gallery down by Mill Plain Road? Uh, down what road? Mill Road. Yes, exactly. Yeah, do you know Fairfield, Connecticut? Yep. <laughs> oh, neat. Yeah. Yep, they also had a place in Shelton, Connecticut, where they did the actual prints. And a lot of my friends would get jobs working in their warehouse there. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What about you? Same process for your prices and stuff? Or? Yeah, I think I started out at like 20 an hour, 25 an hour, maybe something like that. And then just kind of like bit by bit moved it up. Yeah. Um, and to reiterate, it's the 20 an hour is not what you're charging your client. You're just working it out in your head. At yeah, that rate. I'm just kind of estimating it. I yeah. mean, I've never been very good at like, you know, setting a clock and okay, this is exactly how, how much time I've been spending. But I kind of like 
try and figure out, okay, like here's about, about how much time I think I should spend on this. And I think I should be getting like at least 20 and then it kind of went up, you know, 25, 30, 35, 40 and so on. Um, but I think more recently, you know, working in tabletop and stuff like there, you get a sense of like, okay, like a half page piece, you know, when I first started doing those, you know, maybe it's like $300 and then, you know, 400 and 500 and, you know, ratchet up um, over time. And something that I often do in order to ratchet it up, uh, you know, you let your clients know that, you know, your prices are going up and if they want to lock something in now, you know, that's a great tactic. So. And, that's a- and they've been warned basically what the prices are going to be next year. Yep. Uh, a little more about that to reiterate, just so there's no confusion. I don't charge my client an hourly rate. I'm just assessing my own hours. Yeah. There are industries where you charge hourly. If you're doing video game work or concept art of some sort, there's usually a per diem rate. Uh, and there's lots of industry standard rates. So, you know, if you're doing trading card games, most of the most of the budgets have to do with how big the client is and rather than less to do with the artist. So if even somebody like Michael Whalen who gets, you know, way more than anybody else for a book cover is doing magic work. He's getting paid the same as everybody else. And there's a book called the Graphic Artist Guild Handbook of Pricing and Ethical Guidelines. It's a GAG, GAG, is the Graphic Artist Guild, Pricing and Ethical Guidelines. And it's a book of everything saying, uh, my painting appears in a TV show. How much should I get paid for that? Well, this many dollars a second. Uh, I want to do a book cover. How much should I get paid for that? Here's the national average. In the book, you can get it on Amazon used for like 15 bucks. There's a new one every single year. So try to get the most recent one you can. It comes with sample contracts, model releases, amazing resource for artists. But it also gives you ballpark rates for things. So you just know like, okay, I'm not way out of left field on this. So about making prints of original paintings, is it good or bad? Um, I usually try not to make prints of a painting until the painting is sold, because otherwise people will just keep buying the print and never buy the original. But once that original is out in the world, or I'm not selling it, then I'll make prints of it. Uh, and usually, the, usually it's perceived as more prints make that painting more valuable rather than less valuable, like because it's the original and everything else is the reproduction. Uh, so I actually think it's it's a benefit to have that. I just wait on it a little bit. Like you don't want this one piece lingering around because this reproduction looks so good and it's so much cheaper, you know. And Bruce, because you've also got the the mass that you do, right? Yeah. So I do metal. I do uh, a variety of different prints, and then I do uh, limited edition. So it's just a matter of sort of segmenting your market. Like, okay, you know, at the bottom end of things, I sell, um, you know, like a a fancy paper print for like 40 bucks. And then I've got, you know, metal prints for more than that. And I've got limited edition canvases. And so it's offering something for different people and different sizes and different types of materials. Um, and, and it's kind of like the Starbucks model of like, okay, you can get the basic coffee or you can, you know, mm-hmm. get the, the super fancy deluxe with everything in it, you know, and some people are, are very price conscious and they just, you know, want, you know, what they can get and uh, others are looking for the fanciest thing that you can get. So I don't think it's harmful to have that range. If anything, it helps to frame, you know, uh, a relative range of prices. So people are like, oh, 40 bucks is nothing compared to your one that's like 300 bucks. Yeah. And that other one that's a thousand. Mm-hmm. 
And I recently raised my prices, and after I did that, I lost all my clientele. Well, who was your clientele? Was your clientele kind of self-published? And yeah, they were a lot of independent uh, local maps. Is that something you recommend when you no, no, it's, you know, it's a tough call. I, the general feeling is like, let's say you double your prices, you might lose half your clients, but you end up making the same money. If self-publishing, it's, it's really hard. There's this hurdle between amateur and pro and the budgets between that. Like, I have never scared off a client by asking for more money, honestly. Like, it's usually my base rate, which is a fair rate, might not be within their, their budget, but let's say an average book cover pays about $3,000, I'd say. And I'd say, I need $3,500. So like, yeah, okay. But if you're working with like a self-published author and they might only have $500, that's not going to be in the, I'm not going to bring my rates down for that. It's, it's mostly about finding better clientele. You're, if you're raising your rates, it's probably because you deserve higher rates. You need to find better clients, not cheapen yourself, I think. Otherwise, none of the... None of the big clients want to work with with small authors or artists without experience. So, and try to elevate yourself rather than than de elevate. You know. Yes, in the back. This is to Mr. Bruce. So, when you work on the worldwide contest, it felt great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, getting up on the stage and accepting the award was uh, super scary because yeah. <laughs> I, I have, you know, kind of like low-level social anxiety that I, I just kind of manage. But, you know, I got through it. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah it was a really fun experience. You guys put on a big show, too. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, yeah. The way it works is the, the contest is judged is blind judging. So the uh, judges only see a number assigned to the three pieces of illustrations that you submit. They have no idea, age, ethnic, anything. It's just straight, can you make, paint a good picture or not? Um, the judges that we've got, like earlier judges, were like Frank Frazetta, they were some of the first judges, Kelly Freeze, just some of the, the, the people that originally were the, the big artists from the 30s and 40s and 50s, they're the first judges of this because these are the ones that were, had illustrated a lot of Owen Hubbard stories and they wanted to continue on and help support this. But now the judges we've got is like Echo Chernick, she's the coordinating judge. Um, Lazarus uh, Chernick Cirillo, who's in Spain. Uh, Vincent DeFate, Diane Dillon, Dave Dorman, uh, Bob Eggleton, Craig Elliott, Larry Elmore, uh, Stephen Martinier, uh, Gary Meyer, Cliff Nielsen, Mike Perkins, Sergey Poyerkov, Rob Pryor, Dan Dos Santos, Sean Tan, and Stephen Ewell. Those are the judges. Sean Tan, too. Yeah. And... They're all doing because they just see the value of, of paying it for it. But it's, it's their eyes. It's, I don't, I just, I see what the judges decide. And we take the numbers off and find out what the name is. And so that's how we find out who it is. And then we call them and say, you won. And they're flown out from wherever they live for the week-long workshop and taught by these judges. And then we have the gala award ceremony in Hollywood. We usually have it between 20 and 30 media come that cover the event and do the interviews. And that was part of the... Yeah the fun thing too, talking to media. And then the judges themselves and, and various Hollywood celebrities are the presenters uh, for the awards. So it's a real, it's, it's like considered the um, Oscars of science fiction fantasy. So that's what we have there and that's, that's what we do. So it, it is a really good send off for the launch of a career that we really want to be able to do. And quite often winners will team up with their writer, you know, teammates, they'll, they'll find people and they'll, they'll twin up on on 
writing books. They'll do some people, I want you to illustrate my cover, I want you to illustrate my children's book I'm doing. That happens quite frequently. Uh, quite often the judges will take a winner because they really like them a lot. They've built up good rapport and they'll take them under their wing to be able to help and, and nurture their career. So that's something that you definitely will have a lot with this, with this competition as well. So back to any of the questions? Actually, I wanted to expound on one more about your coloring thing. If I might ask, do you consider yourself a professional level colorist? And the, rate, the rates you hiked yourself up to, are those professional rates or still lower than professional? So if people are losing you, it's, not, it's, it's their budget. It doesn't have to do with your skills. Think of it this way. Like even if you lost those clients, if you, got a, if you are professional level abilities, find a professional that would pay you a professional rate at your lowered rate, it's a steal for them. You know, like rather than finding somebody that's spending too much on you to get something that they're not going to appreciate, I guarantee some professional comic artist is looking for somebody that's just like, I just found gold here. And it's a win for you and a win for them. And all you have to do is look at the comics out there currently and see something you can do as good or better and hit those people up. Go to where they hang out at this con. Go walk around their booth and literally with a card be like, man, I really love your stuff. I'd love to color it sometime. You know, my rates are really reasonable. If you ever need someone for a fast project, let me know. And that's it. Easy as that. And, and you just have to find, you have to find the clientele you really want. It's, it's that sniper approach. Like, don't, don't let the world choose your career for you. Don't just like, oh, anybody, please hire me. Find the person you want to hire you and just make sure you are so good they can't say no to you. Okay. I have a question. How important is it on deadlines, being known as an artist that can make deadlines? <laughs> you want to answer that? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I've just come out of a, a few years where I probably wasn't necessarily uh, the artist for deadlines because uh, I had a, a little kid and I was taking care of him uh, a lot of the time when, uh, when his mom was away at work. And... Um, I think it's it's definitely important, but what I've always heard is it's like, are you good to work with? You know, yes. do you do the work really well? And deadlines, and you can kind of you can get away with maybe two of those. Yeah. Right? Oh, oh, that's the whole. Are you good, fast, or cheap? Yeah. You can pick two. You yeah. can't be all three. And it's and it's great if you can do all three. You're gonna get lots of clients. Like that's amazing. And I'm I think I'm doing better with my deadlines these days. And I think my clientele is is perhaps improving, uh, partly as a result. But you know, like as you're making your way into this, like you're going to have some challenges in your life, probably where you you know you have to decide, like you know, how much time you have for for various things, and you might have to ask for extensions. And that's often yes quite okay. Like you just need to communicate well with your client and let them know what, what's coming up and, you know, can you get another week or, or however long uh, it might be. And a lot of times art directors have, well, they'll give you like kind of a soft deadline because they actually have more time than they're telling you that they have. Because they know artists are going to be late with it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So I usually, I do, I ask for an actual deadline and I'm, I try to be really diligent about meeting that deadline. If I'm going to be late, that's the key. It's if you're going to be late, you let them know and you try to let them know as early as possible. If you're the kind of person that's just going to ghost them via email because you're panicking because it's not done, that's when you're going to upset clients mostly. Because 
if you're doing professional work, there's a whole team of people waiting for your thing because now the, the cover designer can't do anything. The printer can't do anything. So you really have to just be honest about it. And time is one of those things you can also negotiate for. Like when I get a job, the first question I ask is like, what is their budget and what is their deadline? And those two things mostly decide if I can take that job or not. And I can say, okay, that's good, but I need three months because I'm already booked for the next two. Or that's good, but I need more money. Time is absolutely one of those things you can negotiate. So. Yeah, one thing I had with um, one of the other judges, Bob Eggleton, um, I've talked to him before, and he's, he really works diligently to, to make deadlines. And he became one of those artists who was on doing book covers, knowing that he would, if you need something, he can actually produce it for you because sometimes there are artists for, for book covers that were like, they couldn't, didn't, but they had to have it for that deadline. Yeah. So they call him on a Friday and he would just, he'd motor through the weekend and have it for them on the Monday. <laughs> um, but he'd work around the clock to do it, but he became very much known as a person that could actually deliver that, which got him a lot more work too. Yep. It's, it's also a reputation. good way to burn yourself out too, though, in the long yeah. run. Like, do you... You know, at the end of the day, when you're 60 years old, do you want to be the guy who was really fast or do you want to be the guy who was really good? Um, it, it's a balance, you know, and it's like what you need at that moment. Do you need that money? Do you need whatever? But yeah, just don't be late, I'd yeah. say. It's okay to not be fast. Just don't be late. Right. And then on, um, on painting or illustration, whatever you're doing, how important is it to focus on what you want to do versus what the market will bear? Hmm. Um, I mean, I like to preserve some space for personal work. Like I have a Patreon specifically for that purpose oh, because, nice. you know, like my, my freelance is in, in increasingly demanding, uh, increasingly pays more. So it gets harder and harder to say no to stuff in order to preserve uh, space for my my personal work. So as I grow my Patreon, it allows me to say, okay, well, I can I can allot this much time in the month for my personal work. And I think some of my personal work uh, that I've done for that has actually been my my very best work. It's stuff that's gotten into Spectrum, and it's stuff that's gotten me further client work uh, down the line as well. Like it's really you know it stood out. Um, so I think it it can be a smart. Uh, strategy, not to mention important for your own, you know, uh, self as an artist uh, to try and, and preserve that if you can and find a way to make that work and find a way to, to make that pay for itself. Yeah. And, and I mean, ideally, your commercial work is your personal work. Yeah. Like that's the hope that, like I said, if somebody's hiring you because you do something nobody else does, they're hiring you for your vision. So what they want is for you to bring out your voice. They don't want you to copy their idea. They want you to copy your idea. It's why they're paying, hopefully paying for you. Um, and I think of this all the time, like if I hired somebody to fix my roof and they were like, oh, I fix roofs and I fix cars and I'm a chef and I do landscaping, I'm going to think, you're probably not good at any of those, and I don't want you working on my car, right? <laughs> but if they are just the guy to go to for this thing, and he says, I do landscaping, it's going to be like, all right, just do your thing. That's the kind of client you want, the client that's really going to let you do your thing, and you're going to shine. So hopefully you're getting in a place where those two things are really synonymous, that you don't feel like, oh, the thing the client wants is not what I want. Then you're kind of 
you need to reassess the clients you're taking. Hopefully you will have to take those jobs at some point, but you should always be working towards the ones that are exactly what you want. And every book I get right now, that's my dream job. It's like I, my personal work, I, if I could paint anything I wanted, I'm painting Harry Dresden. I'm painting like Kavoth. Those are the things I really want to do. Right. So. Now, how do you deal with an art director who's got a vision that's not the same as your vision and they're hung up on their vision and what's, how does one deal with that? Like, I know there's communication, but there's also sometimes an art director is also has... If they know exactly what they want, I just do what they want. That's making my client happy is number one. When they don't know what they want and they still are fishing around for it, that's when it gets mm. crazy and dangerous. But if they, they send me a sketch, like, I just yeah. want this and this and this, it's like, I'll make that look awesome. Yeah, um, that I, doesn't bother me. <laughs> I'll know it when I see it is the worst thing you can yes. possibly hear from your client. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of you submit something to your, to your client, at what point do you say enough? When you say, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? How do you deal with that artfully? It's it, that so much of that is preemptive. Working with client, being a good businessman is like, like I hear nightmare stories all the time about like, oh, this person's just like, like 20 revisions or they don't know this and they don't know this. All of that should be like handled almost preemptively. You don't get yourself in the situation where you're doing that kind of job with a person who has no experience and doesn't know what they want. So for me, it's like being selective about the budget is weeding out a whole bunch of amateurs right away. Even if they're a self-published author, I present the job as like, here's the steps we're going to follow. I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to give you this. And I kind of walk them through, and then they follow my guideline rather than me slavishly being like, tell me what you want. And so it <laughs> alleviates all these problems down the road, like too many revisions. And, I'll, and so I just kind of skirt that whole issue. If you're doing it well, it never becomes an issue. Once it becomes an issue, you're in, you're in the thick of it. You kind of just work your way out of there. Yeah. Do you have any strategies for that? Uh, contracts. I, I have a limited number of revisions in my contract. Once it goes over that, each revision is a percentage of the total. Mm. So it's like, okay, you know, you want these additional revisions, like that's going to be another 5%. That's going to be another 5%. And mm. they quickly decide which things they actually care about. Yes. And yeah. it's also this mentality of, of expectation that if I need to do a revision, it means I failed at some step along the way. It means I didn't quite get their vision right or my vision right. And when I hand that piece to them, that finished piece, if they're unhappy and they want something else, they're still not going to be happy. If they want something else, it's always going to be this like slightly unhappy thing. The first reaction I want is, holy shit, like, and then it's done. The job is done. You never get a revision. So I front end everything I can with manuscripts and sketches and make sure I find something they love right from the start before I ever get to that final. Because the only reaction I want is like beyond their expectation. And in revision, sometimes it's simple things like the change of a color of a shirt or something like that, which is not quite the same thing. But if it's that lack of vision that they're trying to get you to revise, that's something you should have dealt with early, early on. Because again, it's, 
I want my client to come away feeling like they got a steal on the price, that this is so much better than they expected. And, and all of that, if you get kind of one shot to make that impression, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you had to do four rounds of revisions, even if they paid for it, I feel like yeah. they, they're not as excited the same way, you know? It's good. Yes. Yes, yes. I try to weed everything out in the consultation at the beginning to make sure that we're a good fit, that they want my vision, that they know my process and there's no surprises. And when I give them that sketch, even my sketch process is overboard. I sketch in color. I give them almost finished paintings as sketches just because I don't want any surprises. I don't want them to be like, oh, well, that's not what I thought that was going to look like when I saw this little scribble. Um, so it just because I can do a sketch in a day. It takes me two weeks to do a painting. I'd rather lose a day's work on two sketches they're never going to use than lose two weeks just fiddling around trying to tweak things, so. Okay, good. Yes, in the back. Oh, I think, I think you sort of answered my question. I was going to kind of ask about, you know, what, what it's like dealing with revisions when you're working with a client working in traditional media. Almost all my revisions will be digital, even if I'm painting traditionally. So make sure you have some digital chops because I painted the painting the way I want it. And then anything is fine for the book cover. That's separate from me. I'm able to kind of detach from that a, a little bit and, and just make sure it looks good for them, suits their needs, they're happy, and then I'm happy with this one, so. You probably, revisions, it's I mean, it's I'm all, all digital, digital, so it's, it's, nice it's and easy. easy enough, yeah. <laughs> how many of you are traditional? No, oh, that's and a good number. That's a good number, and how many are just uh, strictly digital? About half. Okay, half. so we're about half and half then. Yeah. So does anybody else have any questions? We've got uh, about five minutes left. Yes? Um, do you mind sharing, like, your actual process? Uh, yeah. Um, so the process and how you create your... So currently, it's actually pretty standard for me now. I do all my sketching digitally. I used to do it on paper, but I found when I draw on paper, I tend to draw in line, like comic book kind of style, which doesn't translate to realistic painting the same way, that the line has so much potency and that I'd paint something realistically where now there's no more line. It's like, why does this not look as cool? So I started painting my sketches, which I could do in Photoshop easily. So I think in a blob of pink and a blob of black and it's shapes and colors which translate really well to painting because it's just about getting more detailed. So I'll get the manuscript, I'll read through that and I spend, I would say a good four days coming up with ideas. I spent, if I get one really good sketch, color sketch done a day, that's a good day's work for me. It's, it's kind of like, it'll be me going through 20 bad iterations in a day till I get one good one. I take three awesome sketches that I try to make sure are varied. So like maybe one's action, one's romantic, one's a landscape. I give those to my client once they decide which one they want. And I've done that all from imagination at this point. I then say, okay, now this is the piece they want. How do I make this better? Well, I sucked at this cat, so I need to find photos of cats. Or those hands are no good, so I need photos of hands. And I get all the reference for the things I didn't, wasn't good at. And then I redraw the thing on my board as perfect as I can with new reference. And then I go about painting it. And that's just a slow painting process of, of oil painting, which is usually about a week long at least. So I'd say I spend half my time doing concept and then half the time doing execution. It 
depends how you like to work. For me, digital sketching is the best. Like, I just turn down the lights, I put on weird music, and I just lose myself in that for, like, days. Just because the idea generation is the hardest part. It's, yeah. like, aggravating and crazy. And, and so I really just, the best advice I got is from Patricia Briggs, one of the authors I do covers for. She says, when you sit down to work, sit down to play. Because if you sit down to work, it's all going to be shit. <laughs> but if you sit down to play, good things come out. So I, my day starts off that way. I just play with the sketch until, until something happens. Magic happens. It's like, oh, I like that. It's like I discovered it. I didn't plan it. I discovered it. And then I just keep going and painting it digitally until I see something that sparks in me, something I like, that I think that would make a good cover. Yes? What's your process for uh, deciding that's what you want to present? I will usually do like maybe for, I submit about three sketches. I probably do about six for myself and I call them out and I won't submit anything that I'm not happy painting. Like, don't be like, here's an awesome sketch. Here's an awesome sketch. And then here's an, they're going to pick the, yep. <laughs> like, and then you're stuck painting it. So however long it takes, like, I want to give them truly like, any of these are awesome. That my curation process is, I don't hate any of this. Same. Yeah, very much the same. <laughs> yeah, I, I literally, uh, the project I'm doing for D&D right now, I gave them basically one choice, which mm -hmm. is not really my preference, yeah. but I tried a bunch of different angles on the main subject and I really did not like any of the other ones. Like I had one that gave me the mood and feel that I wanted and I'm like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to go with. I'll, I'll explain to them like why that's the case, but I'm not going to give them anything that I wouldn't be happy to do. Yeah, like and truly proud and happy to do. Yeah. Yep. If you didn't get there, and you have to make the time for that. Like if it's, it's not going to get better when you start painting it. Nothing like it always starts like every sketch is like this is going to be the best thing I ever did, and then it goes, this is horrible. It's the worst thing I ever did. And then you save it and you're like, it's okay. Yeah. That's every painting yeah. for me. So make sure that first phase really is the best. Okay, well, we're, at, we're out of time right now. So I really want to thank both of you, Dan and Bruce. You was, it was amazing having you on this panel. And thank, thank you. you very much for attending. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. And I've got up here, I've got the, the cards for uh, entering the Illustrators of the Future contest. If you're interested, we've got what we talked about in terms of the awards ceremony. You can see what they look like. And we have a, we have a booth over here. I think it's number 10. Where you can come in and, and also find out more information about Illustrators of the Future. Thank you very much. Thank you all. <laughs>